1: Catherine Benito's laugh-out-loud romantic comedies deal with the Bridget Jones dilemmas of life, the unexpected pregnancies, the failed love affairs, and difficult mothers. You get the picture. They've been praised by critics for their wit, charm, and fresh voice, a Kiwi voice. Hello there, I'm your host, Judy Wheeler, and today Catherine talks about the darker side of rom-com, working on top TV shows like The Bill and marrying your best friend. But before we get to Catherine, just a reminder, the show notes for this episode can be found on the website, thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find links to Catherine's books and website, as well as details about how to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes. And now here's Catherine. Hello there, Catherine, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Now, look, I'm, it's predictable, I know, but I like to start with this once upon a time moment thing, and that is when you decided to write fiction, did you feel as if you were answering some sort of calling? Was there an epiphany or a catalyst for
2: it? Um, no, I actually can't remember a time when I didn't write because I, I remember my first book, if you could call it a book, that I wrote. I think I was about, would have been about nine or ten And even though I'd always written, I'd written poems. I've got scraps of paper that my grandma's kept when I wrote things for her when I was six and seven. And I just always knew I wanted to write a book, but I didn't um, actually sit down to go, now I'm going to write a novel, until I wanted to be a bit older. So I went into television and did all of that, knowing that I would always write a book, because I have always written. And I just wanted to be a bit more worldly and have, you know, write with a bit more authority rather than completely make it up. So I sort of started. I can't remember how old I was, in my 30s. And that's when I felt mature enough that I could actually write with authority on what I wanted to write on. But no, always, always was going to write a book.
1: That's fantastic. Now, you've published two well-received rom-coms to date, um, and I think they are fairly squarely aimed at the Gen Y and Gen X readers. Was it a case of writing what you like to read, or was it more strategic that you thought this is where the market is? Uh, no, it doesn't. definitely wasn't strategic. Um,
2: I'm not sure that any... I mean, if there are people out there that can do that, they, they must be brilliant. But no, I, I write what I actually can write, I think, and also what I like to read. But I like to read everything, but... M- I lean towards things with definitely with comedy, but um, no, that's, I think even when I write things with a dark subject matter, they come out a bit flippant and um, I just, I can't seem to help myself. So no, I write what I like and I never worried whether anybody was going to like it or read it. I wrote it squarely for myself and it's just amazing that it got published.
1: Yeah, that's great. Your debut novel was How Not to Fall in Love, Actually, which also sounds as if you've got a very keen ear for the current market. And it was a play, I think, on that much-loved movie, Love Actually. I'm not sure if you chose the title. And your heroine worked in TV. But that was easy for you because you worked in TV as well, didn't you? Yes,
2: I've worked in TV since I was 22, I think. And so in that book she's got my exact job and um and I just I know I love but the behind the scenes tv is so funny and so nuts and full of so many odd characters you've got so many different people from different walks of life trying to make the same thing that I just had to write something that was sort of semi-based behind the scenes because it's I had such a wonderful time working in television and everybody was quite nuts so no that was pretty fun.
1: And it's funny, you know, the little mentions about getting the different um, extras that have to fill different roles and things. There's a real comedy with all of that as well. Yeah. Well, I remember um, just having a moment one day when I rang
2: up and I asked for, um, I needed three Asians, two, um, two men with missing arms, one short, you know, like, short person with blonde and I just had to ask for this weird concoction and I was just asking it like I was asking someone to go to the shop and get me two bottles of milk and a cucumber and some apples and I thought god my life is really weird and that and the person on the other phone was like yep okay three Asians two people with missing arms yep they've got the amputees and I'll have the, okay bye, bye. <laughs> what a weird what a weird conversation I just had but it was so normal that was my normal <laughs> <laughs> have to put it in a book because it is it happens every single day on every single
1: set <laughs> yes. and you've cringed about the way that the plot line parallels the Bridget Jones movie that was really what I was looking back to because the, there's various things in your story and we won't give any spoilers that do parallel what happens in Bridget Jones baby that movie mm. um, and you but you say that that was written before the movie even came out and, and obviously I think you wouldn't have done something so obvious if, if it had already been out. Um, yeah. But I think that being a TV probably has helped you be very wired into popular culture. Would you agree on that?
2: Yes, I think so and, and I, mean, I think I have had my books likened to the Bridget Jones um, style of rom-com and no when I and the, the thing is a book takes so long you write it and then you ha, you send off your story that you've taken maybe a couple of years to write and formulate and whatever then it might take another year for them to edit and back and forth and they choose the title and they choose the cover and then it's got to go to print and that's maybe another six months so by the time your book is out it's you've finished it ages ago and probably never want to read it ever in your life again because you've read it so many times <laughs> and so when I watch that movie at home my jaw was on the floor. I just couldn't believe it. But, yeah. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, maybe working in television, you know, has has me into that popular culture most likely, yeah. Yeah. But I also feed a lot of that kind of stuff as well. Yes,
1: yeah. And I've got to ask, do you watch Love Actually Yourself every Christmas like some of the <laughs> devotees?
2: We did for a while. I think I'm. I think I've overdosed now. But for a while there, yes, we did. And uh, that actually isn't my title. My title was something completely different. So that's the um, the editors chose that. But no, we. I've, I've just stopped watching that every Christmas in the last couple of years.
1: <laughs> well, I Saturation. must admit, I watched the DVD again last night just to remind myself, and that started off a flurry of looking at Colin Firth on YouTube. So. <laughs> Well, we're all pretty guilty of that. <laughs> He's a very good interview subject, I must say, but yeah. Uh, and handsome. But you, you say that you don't like your romance too fluffy. And like many rom-coms, there's very little sex in, in your stories. It's all more implied than, than actually graphic. Um, how do you like to take your romance yourself?
2: Um,
1: probably just, just
2: like the books. I prefer I like the little things um rather than the I really can't bear flowers and chocolates and all of that kind of declarations of adoration i just i can't bear it. I think remembering tiny little things um, is way more romantic than and also joking around I think you should marry your best friend, I think you should date your best friend I think you should. Um, you know have a bit of fun with them
1: yeah yeah and and down on
2: one knee makes me want to vomit
1: (laughs) (laughs) could I be so personal as to ask did you do that did you marry your best friend
2: I did I did and he (laughs) we got married in a registry office we decided to do it for a visa because I've got a British passport and so we're like okay let's just go do it now and then my husband well, husband-to-be, thought, oh, I should probably propose because we were just, I was in the pool and he was beside the pool and I thought, you know, we could just get married and then I think you can come to England with me. And so then he goes, I should propose. And he pretended to get down on one knee and he had sushi in his teeth and I told him, go away. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, then, um, and then we picked the next day off we had from work. It was We both worked together on Shorten Street. And we just went off to the registry office. I wore a denim skirt and my hair and pigtails. And we got married and we just, rang everybody the night my husband rang everybody the night before and said hey what are you doing tomorrow can you come to the pub I'm getting married and people were like to who <laughs> and I was meeting a lot of his friends at the pub and he'd they'd come up and go hey congratulations where is she and I'd turn around and go oh, it's me we're married <laughs> and that's um 17 years now
1: wow that's wonderful that's a great story
2: yeah yeah, yeah. I find I think that's romantic <laughs> I'm way off, but yeah, I find that way more romantic than a big fluffy white
1: dress. (laughs) That's lovely. Look, your second novel, Make or Break, tackled themes of family betrayal and anxiety, and your central character, Jess, is a hyper-anxious type of person. I must admit there were times when I got irritated with her because she was so hyper-anxious. Um, but you're pushing the rom-com boundaries a little bit further here, aren't you? And it's it's definitely a development from the first book. What's been the reaction to that?
2: Uh, well, it's interesting, actually, because people do find Jess um, irritating. But then, so my, my youngest son suffers from anxiety just in the last couple of years. And, you know, it is intensely irritating sometimes. That so it, it sounds really callous, but... You know the the little the cut, not not being able to do certain things or having all these little rules that they put around themselves. So I think people have found her a bit annoying, but I find her realistic because I wanted someone who has the flaws that you know, especially that's so prevalent at the moment. You know, there's so many people with anxiety, um, but there's still comedy in it because there's comedy in everything. So people, I I, I get some reviews where. People absolutely love it and they really like And then I get some reviews where they're like, I hate that lady. <laughs> I, I have no problem with it. And, yeah, I think I have pushed the boundaries of the rom-com there. But um, the uh, that's what I like to read, a bit of reality, a bit of darkness in a rom-com because otherwise it doesn't feel real to me.
1: Yes. I must say I did think there was probably someone close to you who – had anxiety because it does come across as incredibly it's got a real ring of truth about it and that partly helps you to accept it because you do have that feeling of empathy for someone who might feel like that so it definitely works I think yeah 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 thank you (laughs) And the children in make or break as well. They are so real and refreshingly drawn that, um, and they're so important to Jess. And that central relationship of her with her sister's children, I might add, is very real on the page. And and I did feel once again that probably your experience as a mother is speaking through those pages.
2: Yeah, yeah. And I I um I love reading about family, so I love writing about family. I'm really close with my family. I put a lot of pressure on my sister in the first year that I moved to Queensland and 8 months later she's lives on the same road as me. So, um, we uh, we travel to the world and it doesn't matter where I am, my mum turns up and stays for a month and so um, writing about family is actually really important to me. I love the dynamics that bec- that you're forced together with these people that might not, you know, necessarily be your kind of person if you chose them. But but also my children have gone everywhere with me. We include them in everything. So I really I love putting children. I also like putting dogs. I always put children and dogs. I say always. I've only...
1: The third one's got children and dogs as well. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. That's lovely. We've referred to your TV career and you've worked on some quite top-notch shows like... um, The Bill and Death in Paradise. I think you started out, though, on New Zealand's own long-running soap, Shortland Street. Listeners in places other than New Zealand may not be so familiar with that show, but here in New Zealand, it's a total institution. Yeah. It's certainly our longest, probably only, long-running soap. So tell us how you got your start and how that career evolved. Uh, Well, I just decided that I wanted to work in television. I thought I wanted to be a
2: director. Um, and so I just rang a few people and I started to work for free on anything. And I think I remember I watched, um, it was like Survivor or Treasure Island. And my first job was watching hours and hours of footage and then writing down what happens with the time code. And that was my, I worked for free so that I could, you know, say, there you go, I've done something in television. And I remember I had to listen in stereo to a goat's throat being cut. It was it was oh. awful. And I watched all the boring footage. You know, when you see all those survivor films, yes. you get to see the drama, but man, there are is hours of people just picking up rocks. It's awful. So I did that and then um, I, um somebody at Shorten Street I think told me that they'd turned down a, a job so it was still going and I just got the job. And then from Shorten Street I met my husband and we moved overseas and I think we just I don't know, I applied for jobs that I wanted to work in and um, we I generally got them, actually. <laughs> so, we also worked on Coronation Street. I wanted to go from Shorten Street to Coronation Street. It was my aim, and then and we did. I only did a few days, but I did it. <laughs> and w- were you directing or...? No, uh, assistant director. So I was, I so don't do it anymore, a second assistant director, which okay. means you just organise in the background, lots of organising.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. I was fascinated by the Death in Paradise um credit because I had started watching that series before I realised that you'd worked on it and um, I was really attracted to the storyline between the two characters in the first couple of series it was a a very awkward non-romance really in a way that you could sense that they had an attraction but nothing much happened and he was an incredibly um, gawky sort of male attractive gawky male and they actually that that finished after the first two series because that actor wanted out for various personal reasons. Um, what stage were you working on it? Uh, not that
2: those two seasons. I was on the third season, um, and my husband did. We were in the Caribbean for six months, I think. And my husband did the majority of it, but I did bits and pieces. Um, and so yeah, the, the I didn't ever see the first two seasons. So I got to know, but I, I got to know. Um, Chris Marshall, who was the main character on the on the third season. Yes. He might have yeah. died. And uh, but they do they do leave because it's really hard work that work they have to wear because you know, they wear the suits because they always employ the gawky main character who who's British and and so they're wearing a suit and the heat you wouldn't believe the heat there. They I couldn't even wear just a one day I sat at work at my desk in a bikini. Like I went for, oh. I went for it was a, it was another crazy kind of job, and I went for a swim at lunchtime, and then when I came back, it was busy, and I just sat down in my bikini, and it was too hot, and I spent the rest of the day in my bikini. It was <laughs> what kind of job can you do that? It was great, but no, they the actors do move on quite quickly because it's very hard work, They're especially wearing those suits, mm. and it's a crazy life out there.
1: And I suppose actually for any actor being stuck into a long running TV series, it limits the rest of their options, doesn't it? I mean, or or I guess... But every actor that
2: takes on a job, most of the jobs are about, you know, my husband's on a job that's obviously nine months. And yeah, it does definitely take you out. But in in ones like the Caribbean, you're taken away from your family as well. So um, Chris Marshall had one child while he was there and his wife came back and forth, but he's got two children now. So it starts to, you know,
1: limit where you can go and how long you want to be away. Yeah, I know that um, Ben Miller, the first guy, he he gave it up because his wife was expecting. So that's exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now you've spent quite a few years as an international nomad, as you've mentioned, but now you're back. Sounds like you're quite well established in Queensland. But how do you keep yourself inspired and wired?
2: Uh, well, we still travel a lot. So yes, we live in Queenstown now, but it's it's more of a base rather than. Well, what we used to do before, which we just had four suitcases, and for four years we just moved from place to place to place and figured it all out as we went. Um, so now we actually we're unpacked in one place, but we still we still travel a lot. Um, I think because I haven't lived anywhere for a really long time. I've got friends all over the world. So my interactions are with friends who are doing exotic, and they're a lot of the time they're in television, so they're always somewhere exotic doing something weird with a whole bunch of other weird people. And so it's quite fun. And depending on where my husband gets his job is where we jump on the plane and we go there and we find new friends, and the boys find, my children find new friends. I bribe them, actually, to make friends now. If I hear anybody speaking English, I say, I will get you that Spider-Man toy if you go and talk to those people. And my children have started bargaining. They look at the kid and they're like, yeah, Spider-Man toy and $10. I'm so desperate for them to make friends when we're in all these places. So I go, okay, Spider-Man toy, $10 and ice cream, go, go. And (laughs) half an hour later, we've got some new buddies for a week. So I think that I don't have a um, stationary life and that keeps me very inspired.
1: That's introducing networking at a very young age, isn't it? <laughs> they're so funny. They're so uh, hilarious
2: where they just look the child up and down and think, nah, it's not worth it. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> How old are they now? I have one just about to turn 13 and just about to turn 10. Uh-huh. Well, they're, they're certainly at an age where they can cope with that, I think, yeah. Uh, yes. Well, they don't know any different, actually. So, um, yeah, it's their norm.
1: Yeah. Look, as a former TV director, you've got the ideal experience and contacts to turn your novels into scripts, and, and they definitely are properties that I could see a director being interested in. Have you, have you any thoughts of that yourself?
2: Well, I've had, um, on the first book, I've had a movie offer and a TV series offer um, from contacts I've had in, in the industry, but my agent turned them down because they want more money, I think. Um So I'm not sure whether I get much control over that. I haven't quite read that part of the contract, but uh, what I intend to do is once I've written my third book, which I'm currently writing, I'm then out of contract with my publishers, and I would really like to turn the first book into a screenplay, because I originally started it as a screenplay and found that I wanted to tell more emotion, I wanted more internal thought, so I, I changed it and wrote it as a book, and now I think I'll go and do the screenplay. And then I do have a lot of contacts, and um, I've got a female um, director friend who is winning awards, and she's she's pretty amazing, so I might approach her.
1: We'll see. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You'd certainly have a feeling for how to do a screenplay after having worked in the industry for so long. It must be almost there in your blood.
2: <laughs> yes, I think well, for so many years I've read scripts, and mm. it becomes – um, I think when you first start reading scripts, it's it's quite hard because you haven't got description or anything like that. But then it just became, I could see an entire TV show visually while I read those scripts. So if I, yeah, I think it's pace and all that kind of stuff, I think yeah. would yeah. come quite naturally.
1: Yeah. yeah. So turning perhaps to your wider career away from the specific books, so you scored a coup by getting one of the marquee publishing brands in Simon & Schuster to publish your first book. Tell us the story of
2: how that happened. Well, I did a writer's course with Curtis Brown, who are an agency in London, and they put, did an online writer's course, the first online writer's course, and which was brilliant because I can't remember where I was living at the time, but I wasn't in London, which meant I could do it from anywhere. And it was all on this platform, and there were 15 people from all over the world, and it was absolutely brilliant. And at the end of it, they said... Um, please send us your manuscript as first right of refusal and then after that you can go on to other people. So I did that and um, I picked Alice from Curtis Brown. She's absolutely brilliant and she's crazy and I love her. And she took it on in a week and we worked on it for a couple of months uh, with her brilliant insight and then um, she approached publishers and that part's really hard because you think you've done – you think you've just nailed it when you've got an agent, but you don't realize that then you've actually got to get a publisher to come on board. And when the no's started coming in, I thought, oh, it was so long. I've worked so hard. And then Simon Schuster came along and said yes, and they gave me a one book deal. And then I think based on the feedback from that first book, they um, quickly got in contact and did another two book deal straight away. Great. Yeah. And how long ago was that? I think it was the end of 2015 because um, How Not To Fall In Love actually came out in January 2016.
1: Now, I always ask this question. Was, is there one thing you've done perhaps more than any other that's the secret to your success? Would it have been doing that course or something quite different?
2: Well, I think doing the course was a humongous um, kick in the right direction, really changed the writing. But I think what I do is... Um, and I have to constantly keep reminding myself is to not care what other people think and just write what I want to write. In every t- and I get constant doubts, but I have to kick them out of my head and go, who cares how that would be received? If I like it, put it on the paper. And I think that's – and just keep going. Yeah. Because so many people that say, oh, I've started writing a book. I've wanted, I didn't want to be one of those people that was going to write a book one day. I just, yeah. you know – you can't get perfection. If you wait for perfection,
1: you won't get anything. So just start writing. <laughs> sure. Um, in te- in terms of where it fits in the genre frame, would you just you've talked about it as a rom com? I'm just wondering about this label of chick lit. I've had a couple of people on the show in recent times, and funnily enough, both Kiwis who have their sort of real gripes about that chick lit kind of label because they say it's a pink and fluffy ghetto that women writers get pushed into. Mm. Catherine has said that even when she, when she tries to write something that's a little bit more serious or um, dark, that she's chastised because it's not suitable chiclet material. Yeah. Um, what do you feel about that yourself? And having written this anxiety-ridden hero heroine for your last book, um, do you have an opinion on that? Yes, I don't, um, I have two sort of
2: opposing opinions, really. Um, if somebody says to me, I love Chiclet, and they're coming at it from a really um, positive, genuine point of view, and they're not trying to be offensive, then that doesn't offend me. I don't, I'm not offended by somebody saying, oh, do you write Chiclet? And they, and they genuinely love it because it's coming from a good place. And that's sort of the label that has been around for such a long time. But generally, yes, I I don't, I don't know how bad it is to say, but I don't like the covers of my books because I find them very girly. And my one, I didn't realize that you get no control over that. Um, I, my one request was, Oh, just please no swirly letters or silhouette characters um, and pink. And I think on the first book, which I'm looking at now, I can see it's, you know, silhouette characters, swirly letters and pink. And it just, <laughs> it just narrow. I feel like it narrows your readers to women of a certain age and, I don't think the content of that book goes necessarily with the outside because I've had women of all ages read it. I've had men read it and think it's funny because it can be quite foul. The inside of my book is a bit, you know, grubby. I've got a, <laughs> my sense of humour is often in the gutter and I don't think that that reflects it. So, And I have spoken to my editor and they've, they've said, well, you do write, your, your rom-coms are really quite different. And I said, so why are you packaging it? Exactly the same as every other chick lit that you know that is out there. So I do I do get angry about that because you know a man writes a romantic comedy and everybody reads it. A woman writes a romantic comedy and we package it for women. Mm-hmm. I also don't like it being called women's contemporary fiction. Can it not just be called contemporary fiction? We don't call it men's contemporary fiction. It,
1: that really bothers me. I feel like we're only marketing to half the world. Yes, it's funny, actually, because even in the podcast, you know, we have to use categories too. And I've been, you know, sort of dithering myself about whether I, something is romantic suspense or woman's fiction. And I don't really like even the label of woman's fiction. But some, in some ways, some books are really forced into that category because there isn't anything else that just seems to quite fit the bill. But I do understand what you're saying.
2: Yeah, it's it's like we've gone, OK, here we go fiction written by males is fiction and then we have these little subcategories that we'll we'll allow the women to write and we'll put them in their little subcategories and it's just that part really bothers me and I think that needs to come from the publishers it's not coming from they need to start adjusting that and I feel like it will with the way that the world's going at the moment um yeah. Yeah. But, but at the moment it's a battle that I don't feel I have much control over because you've you know, it's not even
1: my title or my cover. <laughs> no, that's right. And, and those those two things are such a large part of the marketing drive. And and I guess readers are also responding to pick the elbow reaction of just picking up something that they recognise. Yeah. I, I, I understand what this is and I've read that sort of thing before and I enjoy it. So you can understand it from their point of view as well, really. Yeah.
2: Yes, I can.
1: It doesn't mean I like it. <laughs> <laughs> look. Are you inclined to overachieve and and when you get stressed out, how do you like to relax? Um,
2: I think I over uh, plan to achieve and then get very upset when I don't achieve my giant list of things that I want to do, but um, I, I'm pretty good at relaxing. I have a dog that's sort of a farm doggy type thing and we live very close to a lake and lots of hills and I just go on humongous walks. And, and then if I really, really, really can't even do that because I need even more, I just shut my curtains and allow myself cipher and read a magazine. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Oh, that's lovely.
1: Look, it is called The Joys of Binge Reading, this podcast, and we do always like to ask people about their own tastes in reading. I mean, the thing is predicated really on the idea that there's been a shift in reading to series reads, but reflecting the binge watching on TV, that particularly now with digital publishing, people can buy the next instalment at midnight if they want to yes. online. Um, so... I guess you always have been a reader. I would guess that. What do you like reading now? And is there anyone you're binge reading at the moment?
2: Um, there is one that I've just uh, gone back to the beginning of, which is David Sedaris, if that's how you pronounce his last name. So, But he's he's not fiction. Um, and I really enjoy his books. And the other one that I read frequently, I use it as a palate cleanser, actually, between genres, is um, Spike Milligan's war memoirs. I absolutely love them. So I might read a, a horrible thriller that keeps me up all night and has just been amazing, but I'm really creeped out. I'll have to go back to Spike Milligan for a couple of books before I move <laughs> on to the next genre. But there's not the last um fiction series that I actually remember binging on was Harry Potter. But I will. I'll read almost anything and everything. And if I find a book and, and I, like Douglas Adams, I remember when I discovered him, I just wanted to keep reading every book I could. Um, and, yeah, if I find a really great thriller and I find out that they've written a few, but, no, I think Harry Potter is the last actual series I remember. Yes. <laughs> it's a while ago. What attracts you to David Sedaris? I love his sense of humour. And I just love how he, again, he writes a lot about his family, and I love that kind of stuff. He's just all the interactions and how he, he's quite mean about his sisters. It's quite funny.
1: <laughs> At this stage in your career, if you were doing it all over again, um, would you change anything? Um, uh, yes, I think I would learn to um,
2: carve out my time and say no because when you're at home and you're working on your book it's very hard for people to recognize that you're working and I think I would have been a bit more strict on saying no I'm working today rather than could you just pick up my kids or could you just and you think oh yeah well I can I'm I'm at home and I think I would have been a faster writer had I put a bit more framework and really seen it as a sitting around doing a job um uh and I might have um, maybe been a bit more forceful on on what I wanted on a cover. I'm not sure if it would have changed anything, but I might have spoken up a bit more about that at the beginning
1: because I'm certainly intend to do that with book three. So wh- that brings us to book three, actually. Tell us about book three and where your career is going. I'm, I'm interested in whether you've got five books and a movie script in your list of things to do. <laughs> I
2: definitely want to, I will always keep writing whether I'm, um, whether I'm being given book, contracts or not Um, but the next one it seems like I'm going a little darker each time actually my editors were a little worried that I'd gone off genre and I sent a huge email saying no 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 I haven't and And then probably chapter 15 it turns out that actually perhaps I have but um, it's (laughs) no it's I'm still really enjoying it and there's still a lot of comedy in it the romance is toned down a bit and I've got bullying and death in this one. So the first one was just, you know, the tragedy of pregnancy. The second one had, you know, betrayal and this one's got bullying and death. I seem to be getting (laughs) darker and darker, but I'm really enjoying it. Set in England again and um, it's around a, a woman who's lost her husband and her daughter is being bullied and just how she gets herself out of that with the help of her family
1: fantastic and and after that you mentioned that this is the last book for your current contract have you looked ahead and thought what you might like to tackle next after you're free to do whatever you want
2: yeah I'd like to do the screenplay of the first book and then I um, I have a fourth uh, story float starting to float and it Seems to happen that you, I feel like it's some of your brain trying to distract yourself from the actual hard work of sitting down and writing. Is that as soon as I sit there and I'm writing the third one or the second one, the next book's going, Oh, hi, hi, can not you write about me? There's all the, and I have to have a, a whole other you know, book, a notebook, sitting with me on the desk for the ideas that come in for the, the next book that you're not even supposed to be writing because if I need to get them out. So there's a, I, yeah, there's definitely a fourth book floating around in there at the moment I can see the characters and all contemporary yes all contemporary I wouldn't mind writing a really dark thriller um, which I also have an idea for as well I want to see how dark I can go and I want to see if I can not put not take you know take the piss out of it actually I want to see if I can actually not try and put jokes in and actually be dark but we'll see <laughs>
1: that could be, be my little test thing. I'll keep it <laughs> and tell us a bit about your working day. Do you have a set routine that you, a number of words you try and get done every day or how do you approach the production side of it?
2: Uh, no, I find I get anxious if I sit there and have a a word count that I have to try and hit because I realise that as soon as I sit there, I'm forcing words that aren't good or I mentally might stop when I could keep going. So I, I don't have that... Um, Pressure. I make sure that I go and do a big amount of exercise first so the big dog walk. Um, and that gets my brain, you know, clear and going. And often I actually have to stop. I've got a little rock that I sit on with the view of the lake. And I've written an entire chapter up there on my phone, just sending myself little text messages, um, because I get so many ideas walking. And I try not to go with friends, actually, because they distract me. <laughs> <laughs> so I go, me and my dog, and then I, I'll get some ideas, and then I come back to the desk and I write until it's time to go and be a mum again.
1: Great. Yeah, so it very much is a full-time job. Yeah, a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> <laughs> Would you ever consider being indie publish and publishing
2: yourself? Uh, I was intending to on the first one. Um, I had no problems if, if a publisher didn't pick it up. Going and publishing myself, and yeah, if if I realised because I did meet another editor who wasn't my own, and she's and I said told her my experience of the sort of the lack of control over certain things, and she said, yeah, that's actually what we do. The entire book is packaged, the cover and the title are all sorted, and we approach the author when that's gone through every other department. So the the idea of actually having full control in indie publishing is. Um, yeah, it sounds quite nice, <laughs> but I'll see. I'll see what it's like once, I've, um, once I'm have once i out of contract. A friend of mine did indie publish and she said it's so hard actually getting it into the bookstores because as soon as you
1: ring up and you say you're indie published, it's very hard for them to take your book. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. There's a definite advantage to being certainly with a publishing company at the level of Simon & Schuster, yeah. no doubt about it, yeah where can readers find you online and do you enjoy interacting with readers?
2: Um, I enjoy interacting, but I don't enjoy saying stuff to the the net as a whole, like just sitting there putting my thoughts on Twitter. I find that, well, I haven't got time for one, but if somebody contacts me, I will always contact them back because I, I think that's wonderful. So yes, I really enjoy interacting, but I don't enjoy the one-sided you know, notion of, Hi, this is my thought for right now. I hate it, actually. I really hate it. Yeah. So I'm on Twitter, but that's only because I have to be. But if people contact me, I love love to hear and I love contacting me back. I'm also on, what's the other one? Instagram. I'm on that. And then I have Facebook, but that's just to find my friends around the world wherever they are. So that's actually personal.
1: Right, yeah. Yes, that's one thing about the indie. If you go indie, that you, you really do need to do quite a lot more of the push out kind of um, social media, which a lot of writers do find. I think most writers probably find quite hard to do.
2: Yeah. And some of them are brilliant at it. And I look at them and I think, why can't I be like you? And and my editor said, just put your funny, you know, the funny little observations that you have. And I think, well, I'm not wasting them on Twitter. I'm putting them in a book. <laughs> <laughs> I'm them away for free. So, um, no, I just, it's not. It's not sitting well with me. I'm sure my editor's very
1: upset, but (laughs) I can't do it. (laughs) Yeah, that's the funny thing. that With Trad Publishing, they still want you to do a lot of your own marketing these days. (laughs) I know, I know. I think they're terribly disappointed in me, but I don't know. I just can't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Look, Catherine, it's been wonderful talking. Thank you so much for your time and all the very best. What's your deadline for number three? When do you have to have it finished?
2: Uh, well, I've well passed the first one because I broke my shoulder. So that was July um, and I couldn't write or sleep or anything. But now I think the next one's September, oh, which is good. Yes.
1: And and how many thousand words do they work out at? Um, I generally have a first
2: draft of, it's ridiculous, one hundred and thirty to 40,000. Wow. wow. And my editor, uh, my agent wanted it. Be down to a hundred thousand, but actually, I write, I publish about one hundred and ten to one hundred and twenty thousand. Okay, sort of more of a
1: Marion Keyes style yeah, book. Yeah, they're quite thick books, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, they are. Or Leanne Moriarty, they're probably about the same size as hers. Yeah, yeah, I think
2: I'm a chatty person,
1: so it
2: comes out in my book. I talk too much,
1: so it comes out in the book.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Look, it's been wonderful talking to you. Actually, I don't think you talk too much at all. It's flown <laughs> off your tongue beautifully. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you very much bye now
0: bye Jenny thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast you can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com we'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next and if you enjoyed the show take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests thanks for joining us and happy reading
1: the Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com. That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, audio services at gmail.com or check our show notes He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone as a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter I think you'd agree that his voice is both lighthearted and warm. He is super easy to work with, no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.